Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to the fabulous Emily Tampkin, senior editor US of The New Statesman and my World Review co-host, and the author, more importantly, of Bad Jews, a history of American Jewish politics and identities. Emily needs no introduction to our regular World Review listeners, but we will embarrass her and give her one anyway. Emily is not only my amazingly talented colleague here at The New Statesman, she is also the author of not one but two fabulous books, The Influence of Soros, and now the soon-to-be-published and absolutely brilliant Bad Jews, which will be published October 18th, tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the first day it goes out in the US, and November 10th in the UK. Emily, welcome to the other side of the microphone, and congratulations on just this wonderful book. Thank you so much for that extremely generous introduction. It did indeed embarrass me, and <laughs> it's surreal to be on the side of the mic on this podcast. That was my intention. I wanted to start with maximum discomfort. Right. <laughs> so. Bad Jews, you describe in the introduction as a roughly 100-year history of Jewish-American politics, culture, identities, and arguments. Let me start with the most obvious possible question to ask an author, which is where the idea came from to write this book, and perhaps less obviously, why you then questioned whether you were indeed the right person to write this book. I'll take the first one first. My villain origin story for this book is that, as you mentioned, my first book was on George Soros. And one of the things that comes up often from his detractors is that criticism of him is not really anti-Semitic because he's somehow not really Jewish, right? Because he has the relationship to Israel that he does, or because he's not religious and he doesn't go to synagogue and so on and so forth. When my first book came out, somebody tweeted at me saying that I had given an interview and this person said it was a ridiculous interview because a lot of, quote, very Jewy Jews, end quote, don't like Soros. And I was really bothered by this. And 
as and so sat with that for a moment and thought, am I bothered because of Soros or am I bothered because of me, right? Because of something else. And all of this was happening in the Trump era, the American Jewish politics therein. Why I wondered if I was the right person to write the book. I, look, I had a very secular upbringing. My mom converted to Judaism before I was born and it was a reform conversion. So there are some who might say, you're not, are you even really Jewish at all? I had not been to Israel before writing this book. I basically wondered if I was Jewish enough. Oh, and my husband is not Jewish. I should say that an intermarriage comes up throughout, throughout the book. I, I basically, I wondered if I was Jewish enough to write it and got over that by thinking, wait a minute, if anybody else said that about themselves, I wouldn't just say, no, you're Jewish enough. I, I would disagree with that entire framing, that, that there's a right or wrong way to be Jewish. Like, why was I holding this myself to the standard with this? This was, wh where did this deeply internalized thing come from? And thus decided to, to do it anyway. How did you come to think about this idea in the title of what it means to be a bad Jew? I think it's this phrase that we throw at one another. I should say that the I asked, I closed many of my interviews asking, and what do you, when I say bad Jew, what, what comes to mind? And the most common answer that I got was, I think of myself. And some people said this in a joking way, and some people said this in a less joking way. I think it's something deeply internalized by many American Jews. I think we use it in two senses. There's a religious sense, like, oh, I'm, I eat shrimp, I'm a bad Jew, or oh, I didn't go to services, I'm a bad Jew, or oh, it's, I don't speak Hebrew, I'm a bad Jew, which I disagree with, but I understand more where it comes from, that this is, being Jewish is many things, but it's also a religious identity, and that if you're not at a certain level of observance, I can get where that comes from. What bothers me, I think, what bothers me more is when it's used in a political sense. You have a certain relationship to Israel, you're critical of Israel, so thus you're a bad Jew, or you heard this from Trump often, that Oh, they, these Democrats, these American Jews, they just don't love Israel enough. They're just loyal. They, that somehow makes us unworthy of the title of Jewish. And I think what we have now in the United States and elsewhere is that it, it just gets thrown back and forth across the political aisle in a way that I find extremely unproductive and unhelpful. And I would rather, rather than argue that I'm the good Jew and I'm the one who's interpreting everything correctly and I'm the one doing it in the authentic way, I would rather talk about what's meaningful to me, what's compelling to me, what's significant to me. And not try to claim ownership over something that really can't be owned, can't or can't be claimed in that way. Can we unpack that a little bit in terms of thinking about writing, researching this book during the Trump era and how you saw these notions around acceptable versions of Jewishness being mapped onto the American political system? I think on the right, you had American Jews who said Trump is taking a very quote unquote, pro-Israel stance. He's he's really working very closely with then prime minister by, and perhaps the future prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. That, great. That's what it should mean to be an American Jewish person who's engaged politically. And in fact, there were op-eds written by people who said, maybe these other American Jews, perhaps they're Jewish in a halakhic sense, right? Maybe, maybe they have the right Jewish parentage, but they're married to people who aren't Jewish, and so they don't really have Jewish values, and they don't really care about Israel. And should we even really be considering that a Jewish opinion? So that's one hand. On the other hand, most American Jews vote for Democrats. And I think that what you also saw was language like, for example, a, a very common answer I got to what is a bad Jew was Stephen Miller. Now, Stephen Miller was the person who was the architect of much of Trump's draconian immigration policy. I personally, when I'm listening to 
Jewish services or if I'm looking at American Jewish history or Jewish history more generally, I find it very difficult to arrive at the conclusion that closed border, closed door immigration policy is defensible from a Jewish sense. Having said that, I don't doubt that other people could look at the same texts or listen to the same same speeches or read the same history and come to a different conclusion. And so would I say that Stephen Miller is a bad Jew? No, I think he's a terrible person. I think he shouldn't have been entrusted with American policy. I think he completely disagree with his interpretation of what it means to be Jewish. But uh, yeah, he's still Jewish. He's an awful policy writer. You know, I could go on and on. But I don't want to say that I have authenticity, that I have a claim to something that he doesn't. He does. I think he's using it poorly. But people often say those aren't Jewish values. Those are definitely Jewish values. They're not my Jewish values. They're not your Jewish values. But you, we have to acknowledge that the bad is what we think of as bad is in there as well as the good. One of the things that struck me about some of your interviews, particularly towards the end of the book, was the sense that this was changing, like popular notions of what it means to be Jewish, but also growing aspersions of the various conspiracy theories that are assigned to, to, to Jews, a real visceral, awful rise in anti-Semitism that we saw during the Trump years. Did you feel as you were writing this book that the situation w- was changing, that this was becoming an increasingly urgent subject? How did you come to think about that? On the one hand, it's always been changing. That's one of the ideas underpinning this book is that we often say everything's so polarized and everybody's fighting and we're in this moment of crisis. But I think if you look at the past 100 years, it's always been changing. It's always been contested. Having said that, I think we are in a unique moment where one of our two major political parties in the United States is increasingly comfortable embracing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and tropes and using them for political gain. And I think we've seen that many American Jewish establishments and organizations were not comfortable calling that out in the Trump years and are not completely comfortable calling that out now, either because they liked what the Trump administration was doing and saying on Israel and or because they are not comfortable not being bipartisan. They don't want to just be an organ for one political party. But the reality is that the Republican Party right now, the Republican gubernatorial candidate in the Pennsylvania governor's race is connected to a far right social media site or is backed by somebody who's connected to that and has repeatedly bashed his opponent for sending his children to Jewish day school. That's where we are. And I think part of what we've seen is that, and this is not new, but it's quite salient now, is that the sort of mainstream American Jewish organizations and institutions and people who perhaps say that there is an American Jewish community that they can speak for are not where most American Jews are. Now, the part of this that I'm more optimistic about is that I think what we've seen or what I came across in doing my interviews is that you have people who who say, okay, then I'm going to go build my own thing. And so what I've been saying is that, and I hope this comes across in the book, is that on the one hand, we're at this very polarizing moment within American Jewish life, but I also think we're in quite a pluralistic moment where people are building new institutions and not institutions, but new groups, new communities, new ways of organizing. And so when people from these organizations and institutions lament the the state of American Jewish life, I would encourage them to talk to American Jews because the American Jews that I spoke to are still completely engaged in being American Jews and invested in it and are perhaps looking at new ways to do that. You interviewed both of your own parents for this book. Can you share a little bit of what they told you about how they 
view this change. And hello to both of them, because I know they are World Review listeners. They're big fans of the pod. I think the level of open anti-Semitism in American politics su- surprises them. I think personal anti-Semitism is something that we have all come across many times throughout life, but it's it feels different to experience it at the political level. My dad joked at one point that our family was like, how do you put it? He was like a walking laboratory for the American Jewish experiment, which is part of the reason that I ended up including my own family, because you have you have the great grandparents who who come from Eastern Europe and find a way and make American life. You have my grandparents for whom Israel and marrying other Jews was very important. You have my parents who my dad breaking from the tradition that he grew up in and marrying, marrying my mom. And you have my siblings and me, all of whom interpret what being American Jewish means in very different ways. I think they, and I will say that when I was worrying about whether I was the right kind of Jewish person to write this book, my dad in particular was like, yes, you should do it and you should feel empowered to do that. So since he's listening, I'll say thank you for that. You, I think, say in the book that actually your favorite interviewee was your mother. Can you share a little bit about that? She was, I think... What I came to realize by interviewing her is that her goal was to give each of us enough Jewishness and enough Judaism to do with it what we will and and to have the sort of moral foundation that we could take with us and return to however we wanted as adults. It, what I realized in speaking to her and in writing the book was that, yes, that's happened. And in a way, we it, it was a conclusion that I was able to arrive at because I wrote that, which is a nice feeling, right? That's not a grand political thought or a great intellectual analysis. But as New Statesman readers know, I don't really write about myself in a personal way. And so I don't have that experience of like finding out something about myself by writing all that often. And it was meaningful to me. And I hope it is to the reader as well, because it's in the conclusion. Last personal question to continue putting you on the spot and taking you away from your geopolitical comfort zone. How did this process, writing this book, working on this change your own, your relationship to your own identity. You address this in the book, but to give listeners a, a little insight into some of the steps that, that you then took. I, I think I'm more, I'm definitely more observant, not like terribly more observant, but I, I joined a synagogue because I was doing interviews with people who were members of synagogues. And I thought, wow, that sounds really nice. I'm jealous of that. And then I realized that I was an adult and I could just seek out a synagogue that felt welcoming to me and join one if that is what I wanted to do. And I'll say I I was in a group of people over the summer and one woman was speaking about how she was looking for her right level of observance and she liked knowledge that she had found in orthodoxy, but she wasn't sure it was for her. And I said to her, you get to keep that knowledge and do with it whatever you will, right? There's no one who gets to, you, you can, for the rest of your life, put all of this together in a way that that makes sense to you. And this other woman there turned to me and said, I don't know that you would have said that before you had written the book. I don't know that you would have felt that kind of ownership of Jewishness and Judaism for yourself, right? And to encourage other people to have it for themselves. And so I think that's true. I think that the person who said that was right. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. 
featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How did this build on your previous book when you looked at uh, the influence of Soros, about, about George Soros? It felt to me like this book was then a more personal analysis, uh, an odyssey, and very much centering your own experiences and your own questions. Is it fair to say that this is a sort of, that this was a shift from that sort of overtly geopolitical, maybe more abstract approach to the subject, to this real questions of identity and individual personal experience? It's more personal for me, certainly. I'm more in it. I'm more present in it than I am with my last book. And I also think it's more personal for the reader because they're not reading about this Hungarian-born billionaire. They're reading and they could be reading about themselves. I think it is a huge responsibility to write about identity because there's nobody is going to read this book and completely agree with it because it's not like they it's not their exact understanding of identity and what being 
Jewish in America means. That's totally fine. I really, and that's not just fine. It's good. I really try to include a range of perspectives and views, including those that I disagree with, including those that are not known to me. But at the end of the day, a challenge of it and a good thing about it is that I think people are invited to feel personally about it and to think, wait a minute, that's not my own. That that wasn't my own upbringing or wait a minute. I'm not sure that I totally agree with her on being an American Jew in whatever city today. But that's but that. But I, I invite readers to to bring themselves to it as well. What was the most challenging aspect of this? I guess what were the more challenging arguments that you had to grapple with? That knowledge that I wanted it to be as representative and inclusive as possible, but no, not everybody is going to be represented because there are as many American Jewish stories as there are American Jews. That was a huge challenge. And also, I'm really in conversation with scholars of Jewish studies in this book, which is humbling. One person who I interviewed said to me, we all write in our own register, which I found very useful. And the other thing is that I don't, I do center myself in this book and I am in this book, but I also, there are moments where it's really not appropriate to be at the center. So I write about Jews of color and it was extremely important for me to include that, but I also don't want to claim that I'm speaking for Jews of color. Israel, the Israelis and Palestinians are in this book. I'm not speaking for Israelis or Palestinians. I don't think that the Israeli-Palestinian, that that relationship, that conflict, like the, this, the search for, for peace or for Palestinians to live with dignity, that's not about American Jews, right? And so it was important for me to include that, but also not to claim that I have a perspective or an experience that I don't. What, particularly looking at issues for Jews of color, what did you learn about that? How did you come to, to think about that? I think two things are true. The first is that for most of American, for most of U.S. history, most Jewish people have gone through life as white Americans. And that comes and very consciously sought that out at certain points in history, knowing that it brings with it certain rights and privileges. There's this conversation today because of rising anti-Semitism, because of or because of white supremacy, are Jews white? And what I say to this is that I personally go through life as a white person. That doesn't mean that I'm not you know, that doesn't mean that there isn't anti-Semitism. That doesn't mean that there isn't white supremacy. It does mean that I've benefited from certain rights and privileges. And further, when Jews of color are telling you that they are treated as other within Jewish communities, you don't get to turn around and say, or I don't feel that one should turn around and say, I'm not really white. That's not how this works. And I, people should realize that American Jewish life is going to become increasingly diverse as as people, the face of American Jewish life is changing. And that's something to, in my opinion, that's something to embrace and celebrate and not something, there is a study that I cite in the book that where many Jews of color say that they were, they've made, been made to feel unwelcome in Jewish spaces. And a response to this from people was, it's actually, that's, it's actually not that many who feel uncomfortable. Like that, that survey number is too high. And my response in the book is, okay, let's say it's 1% of Jews of color who feel uncomfortable in Jewish spaces. Isn't that still way too high? Isn't that still, isn't that still too many? And I will say that I, I myself am not a Jewish person of color, but my husband is of Indian descent. So hopefully one day we will have a family that, that includes a Jews of color. And that, that thought of, oh gosh, I, that thought of how I've been made to feel unwelcome in certain Jewish spaces in other ways, but it's never been that. And so it's something that I take extremely seriously. I try to really try to not just opine on it as I'm doing now, but to include voices and perspectives of Jews of color in this book. Two last questions, as I know we're, I think, probably already running a little bit over time. How did you go about finding, you have such a 
diverse range of voices and perspectives and people in this book. How did you go about tracking them down and how difficult was that process? So some of the people who were interviewed in this book, I sought out because they were they are significant in American Jewish history or they're players in American Jewish institutional life. But one of the things that I'm proud of is that the majority of people interviewed in this book are I don't want to say just American Jews, but they're they're people who are living their lives as American Jews. And basically, I put out a call for and used friends and friends of friends and friends of strangers and friends of interviewees and really did try to get a range of voices. Because, again, as I said, it's my own stories in there, but I wanted to feel like a history and present that's lived in because it is and is really important to me in the writing of it. Can you share the story you tell in the book about the woman who then emailed you to check that she was indeed the right kind of Jew? To speak yes. To okay. So I put out, and this, I know that the title is tongue-in-cheek and provocative. First of all, I mean, somebody that was like, what if anti-Semites read this book because of the title? To which I would just say that they will then get a nuanced and sensitive treatment of American Jewish history. So I'm not worried about that. What really reaffirmed for me that this was the right framing is that a woman, or one of the things that reaffirmed for me that this was the right framing was that this woman emailed me after, as I went to set up the interview, to make sure that she was what I was looking for, that she was like the right kind of Jew, that she was Jewish enough. And in the interview, she says she she talked about moments in her life that she was made to feel not that or less than in a way that I think many American Jews, particularly if they break from the line of certain establishment organizations or if they have a parent who isn't Jewish, if they're married to somebody who's not Jewish, if et cetera, et cetera, have been made to feel and have internalized. And she said, well, what is a good Jew? Please, somebody tell me. And that for me, that's why I wrote the book that feeling. Final question, which was going to be, and then I realized this is just too cruel a question to ask an author to sum up what is the one message you'd like people to take away from this book. But I will perhaps ask a variant of that question, which is, what is the message you would like people to take away from this book? But I want to also make sure that you include the extraordinary metaphor you use in the conclusion of the book about tiles Mm -hmm. and get a chance to use that analogy. So let this be the clumsiest possible way to ask this question, but what is the message that you would like people to take away from this book and how do tiles feature in that message? So Katie is referring to a conversation that I had with my rabbi. I, lo- I loved the idea of closing with a story of a rabbi. It felt like a throwback to these, I don't know, Sholem Aleichem or something. But basically he had been talking one day during Shabbat services about how if if for you, Jewishness and Judaism is just one thing, you just have one tile. And if it, the more Jewish experiences you have, the more you think about it, the more you explore it, you add the tiles, you have a mosaic and you can rearrange the tiles to change the mosaic. It still has to make sense. It still has to be like, a you know, an aesthetically pleasing picture, but you can keep moving things and moving things around. And that's the conclusion that I came to in this book, too that I can do that. And so can you, the reader, or you, the listener in this case. And I think, I I don't think that's, I don't think that any of this is unique to Jews. Everybody has an identity. Everybody, especially, especially if you're a minority in any way at any place in the world, I think these are things that you have thought about. But as an American Jew, this is what I came to realize. And this is what I hope, I hope readers will take away as well. That we have this immense, this wonderful opportunity that we have, which is to make a picture, look at it, and then mess it up and start again. Listeners, I hope you can understand why I was so determined to draw the tile analogy out of Emily. Emily, it is a fantastic book. We're all so proud of you here. So congratulations. Thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, please go out and buy Bad Jews as soon as it is available. It is a wonderful book and you will all share more of Emily's Emily's wisdom and her wonderful writing. Thank you, Katie. 
This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all of our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us five stars and maybe even leave us a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.